this is Canada Reads American Style, featuring two friends who love Canada Reads and Canadian literature. Welcome our host Rebecca from Michigan and Tara from Ontario. Hello everyone and welcome to Canada Reads American Style. Today it's just me, Tara. I'm here interviewing Gina Leola Woolsey, who is the author of 15,000 Pieces. Gina left her corporate career at midlife to pursue an education in creative writing, earning a BFA from the University of British Columbia and an MFA from the University of King's College. She splits her time between small town Alberta, downtown Montreal, and her hometown of Vancouver. Gina won the 2010-2011 CBC Nonfiction Prize for My Best Friend, a decade-spinning tale that offers a glimpse into her relationship with her troubled brother, from the innocence of their difficult childhood to his adult addictions. Gina's latest book and first book, 15,000 Pieces, A Medical Examiner's Journey Through Disaster, was published in September 2023 by Guernica Editions. Welcome to the podcast, Gina. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here. I am very excited to speak to you about your book. But before we get to your book, I want to discuss your bio. So I read what I will call the factual bio, your factual biography that I found online and pieced together. But on your website, GinaLeolaWolsey.com, you have your bio on that website is beautiful. So I would like to share it with our listeners. And then I have a question to ask you based on this bio. So on your, yeah, on your website, this is your bio. Creation is necessary. The first medium was my body. I danced my passions. Motherhood taught me to move charcoal and layer paint. A career in the food industry educated my palate and opened my mind to a new medium. The forest is my church, and human nature is my muse. I write it all down. So you've expressed yourself creatively with several different mediums, it seems, throughout your entire life. But that last sentence, I write it all down, seems to imply that writing has been a constant. Can you discuss your creative process as a whole? and how writing has like worked its way in there? Absolutely. That's a wonderful question. Um, and I love that you read that bio. I, I love that bio too, but I, yeah. I didn't use it for media outreach just because it didn't provide, I think, what, you know, the hard facts that mm-hmm. journalists are often looking for. I started out in, you know, as a young woman, well, even as a child with a love of dance, And that was my main form of creative expression. And then I became a mom when I was 25 and I was a single mother. So it, I couldn't keep up with the dance career. I had to leave the company I was in. I stopped teaching dance. And then I found myself at home, you know, with once my daughter was in bed, I was thinking, okay, I just, I need to get these yayas out. What am I going to do with this creative energy? And I tried painting and working with charcoal because that seemed to be the easiest thing and it still involved some movement but I I wasn't very skilled at it 
uh, <laughs> I've always. <laughs> so it wasn't terribly satisfying. And I thought this is not going to pan out for me. Um, so I started taking writing classes in the evening and I was working in the food industry at the time. So I found that cooking was a great way to be creative and it had immediate feedback from people. You know, you could really mm-hmm. get some satisfaction from your creation immediately. But I've always liked language and uh, I've always liked to write and especially tell stories. I think I communicate a lot with people in the getting to know you phase and telling them what's happening with my life through telling stories. So I took a night class, probably in my early 30s at Langara College in Vancouver. And uh, it just was an instant fit. Like it was beautiful and people were affected by my writing. You know, I could, I could elicit tears. I could make people feel things. And so I knew that was the one for me. And that, so that's how I came to writing as a full-time gig. Yeah, that's very cool. I like that. I like also on, because your bio on your website is unconventional, but so are your descriptions of your, your works. So your essay about your brother and your book have separate little tabs, but I loved that. And so I encourage everyone to check out Gina's website because it's a really cool website. A lot of photographs along with lines of text, which Mm -hmm. I just thought was also a really neat way to present your work. I think that we are, when we're online now, the visual component is so important and it's how we engage first. And essentially, if there's an image that catches your eye, it makes you want to read. If there's more that goes with it, you'll you'll engage with it. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I wanted to make the website quickly consumable and to work with the visual medium as much as possible. So all of those photographs on my website are pictures that I took myself. Oh, they're beautiful. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I had fun. I built the website myself. I had fun putting it together. Oh, nice job. That's so easy. (laughs) Okay. So now let's move on to your book, 15,000 Pieces. So 15,000 Pieces tells two stories. The disaster of Swiss Air Flight 111 that crashed off the coast of Nova Scotia on September 2nd, 1998, and the story of Dr. John Butt, the chief medical examiner of Nova Scotia at the time. How did you find his story? To tell you the truth, his story found me. I have a a late husband. He passed away uh, five and a half years ago now, but he was a in in business consulting. So he did a lot of networking things. And he used to go to this uh, dinner, this quarterly dinner group where there were a lot of mature men, mostly uh, men, few women who were professionals of various sorts. And they're at, a, at, at the Vancouver Lawn and Tennis Club, which is a rather, rather swanky place. And there would be an intellectual speaker of some sort during dessert and a schmooze at the beginning. And Dr. Butt was one of the people who attended these dinners. And my husband liked to take me sometimes along with him. And we all had to stand up right before dinner and say a little bit about ourselves because it's a networking thing. Like, give us an update on what you're doing, introduce yourself kind of thing. And when Dr. Butt stood up, he just left such an impression on me. He looked like a 
sartorial Alfred Hitchcock. And he, <laughs> he kind of rocked back and forth on his feet and all the men are trying to get a laugh. It's quite funny. Yeah. And he said, you don't want to meet me professionally because if you did, you'd be dead. <laughs> and I was just hooked. I was like, who is this guy? But at the same time, my husband was diagnosed with stage four prostate cancer. So death was kind of all around me at that time. And, and human biology is one of the things that I'm fascinated with. And I really, I study it. I want to know more about it. I like to include it in my writing. Uh, the human animal and how we work on all levels is kind of my jam. So my husband introduced me to Dr. Butt and we got talking and I said, maybe I could interview you for a magazine piece. And after the first time I went to interview him at his office and I wanted to talk about death and dead bodies and what that's like, which to him, I think felt naive. He wanted to talk about his feelings and all the emotional drama in his life. So I saw the complexity of that story. And at the same time, I discovered a master's program, the first of its kind in Canada, that was specifically a master's program in nonfiction that was on the East Coast, where a big part of John's, uh, Dr. Butt's story, professional story takes place. So it all just kind of was clicking together. And um, I ended up deciding, because I was working on a memoir at the time, and I decided to shelf that and write John's story. And that is 10, 10 years ago, 11 years ago now that I, I started, I met him. Wow. So did it take you that long then? I guess, well, you're working on your master's as well. So, but still that's, that's quite a journey. It took me five years to write the book as I was, yeah, I did my master's degree, which was two years But I focused, you know, the book was, working on the book was a big part of my master's program. But I was also running the back end of my husband's company, his consulting company, doing HR, business strategy, accounting. And my husband was also sick. And so as he went downhill, I I was committed to caring for him. So he came first. And... I still had, my daughter was just out of the house at that point, but she still needed support from us. So there was a lot of other stuff going on and I was kind of um, writing off the side of my desk. The book also required a ton of research and a lot of interviews. And I like to do interviews face-to-face. So I flew across the country three times, like hopscotching across Uh, stopping to interview his family, his friends, people he'd worked with, people who were involved in the Swiss air disaster, uh, and so on. So it was also my first book. And I, and you kind of figure out how to write a book as you go, you know, it's, it feels like an insurmountable task at the beginning. So you're kind of one foot in front of the other. So there was a lot going on as this book was being created. And just as it was finished, my husband passed away. So then I was sort of falling down on the floor for a couple of years, not really able to do much. And selling a book, you really have to have your ego intact, be ready for the rejection and have the wherewithal to just keep going until you get it done. Uh, So that, you know, so there was a big break there where I didn't 
push the book. And then uh, I found the publisher uh, three years ago now, signed my contract. And then, it, and then it takes a year and a half, usually from the time you sign your contract until your book comes out. So that's the saga. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that is a journey. That is a journey of, for the book. It kind of matches up with the book itself. Like, the, you know, as you're telling this, it, it, I can see an evolution in the story. And yeah, I like it. So the book itself, the chapters alternate between the crash and Dr. Butt's personal story. Why did you decide to tell it this way rather than purely chronologically? Structure is one of my favorite parts of writing. You get the story idea, you know what you want to convey thematically or what your message is or why you're writing this book. And then figuring out what's the most impactful way, the best way to tell this story. How can I make the most of this story and make the ride as enjoyable as possible, you know? So the big difficulty in this story was this, it had a lopsided nature to it. I knew it was going to be about his life uh, for various reasons. I wanted it to be about his life, not just his work. And I knew that the crash story was a huge, pivotal, the biggest thing that ever happened in his career, perhaps the biggest thing that ever happened in his life, it changed him the most about uh, other uh, out of all of the cases that he worked on. So how could I balance? I knew it was going to need a lot of time, but it's a matter of two years out of the whole book. So I was like, how am I going to, I can't, if I tell this chronologically, it's going to go along, 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 and then all of a sudden time's going to have to slow right down and it's going to feel lopsided. So I thought that it, I could use the crash story and I told it in the present tense and I used many points of view in that story. And I thought I can tell this with immediacy and urgency and a lot of drama. And then I can alternate the chapters of his life starting when he's 23 in the Navy, when he gets a call that his mother is dying and he has to go home. And that can be more introspective, a little bit slower. I tell it in past tense. And those chapters can inform what his what's happening with his behavior as the crash aftermath of the crash is unfolding. So that's why I chose to do that woven or braided, I think they call it style. And then the two stories come together in the last couple chapters and the timelines meet. And I just, I did it because I thought that that would, that was the best way to balance it out and make the pacing work. Yeah, no, it was a great decision. It totally works. Because I found, I also found myself immersed in both storylines, but never like I had to, that I was switching from one to the other. Does that make sense as a reader? I think if I told it chronologically, you would have gotten bored perhaps with the mm -hmm. life story, the background, you know, his, the slow coming along of his life, I think. And then all of a sudden there'd be this crash and everything would get really dramatic and fast paced. And so yeah. it would feel disjointed. And would you even make it to the crash part? So I, I used that crash narrative as like the driver, as uh, Amy Hempel would say, the horse's of the story that 
pushed it along or pulled it along. Yeah. Uh, what was the most challenging aspect of write, the writing process? We kind of touched on it already when I talked about, you know, how long the book took to um, make it to shelves and bookstores. But it was the subject of death, uh, which I think is a really worthy thing to explore, especially in the West. I think we're, I think we've tried to sweep it under the rug in the last hundred years. With the, we don't have relationships with the bodies. Uh, after death very often we've kind of put it in the hands of professionals and and we step away from it and I actually think that's kind of detrimental to the healing process and the grief journey from my own experience I can say that so as I was writing the book I was going to the cancer clinic at the beginning it was like once a month we'd have an appointment at the cancer clinic because I went with my husband to all of his appointments and that slowly accelerated. So we were, you know, eventually we were going once a week to the cancer clinic and I was researching his particular cancer, which was rare and the drugs he was on. So I knew what the best, you know, things to eat were and the best ways to deal with the side effects of all the drugs. And that fit very nicely with the work I was doing on the book. But when it came to interviewing people who'd lost loved ones, Uh, because there are many people in the book around the crash that I interviewed who were the families or the loved ones of the people who died in the crash, along with his other work as a forensic pathologist and chief medical examiner. He dealt with a lot of people professionally who'd lost loved ones. So I interviewed many of those people. And as I was sitting there asking them questions about their grief and the role that Dr. Butt played in that. I was thinking about the grief journey that I had ahead and it was sometimes hard to stay on track in those, as you can hear my voice now, in those interviews and not have it overwhelm me. But I think that made me more empathetic to what they were saying. And I think I took it more to heart. And I I think that came out in the writing. So I don't think it was a bad thing, but it was an education for me, but it was emotionally challenging. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to, I, obviously I'm a reader. I'm thinking you're a reader as well. And I love to talk to other readers about their books and what they're reading so what are some of your favorite books or authors that you would recommend for us? Well, I was thinking, okay, so I have kind of a go-to list of book recommendations that I give okay. to people who are writers primarily, because that's who's asking me about books for the most part, are beginning writers or new writers. I actually work as a, a writing coach with people mostly professional people, especially scientists who want to use story to tell about their work and their research or who want to write books about their work, but aren't necessarily writers. So for, for structure and these, Mm -hmm. and this is an all over the place. No, I want it all. Yes. (laughs) For structure, I say Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. 
Oh, and I think okay. You know, okay. I think most people know the story of how that book came to be. It was her and Lord Byron and who there was one other writer that was with them. They were spending a summer, I believe it was a summer in a cabin on the beach and they had a horror story competition on the go. So she wrote the part of Frankenstein where Dr. Frankenstein brings the monster, his creation to life, where he animates it. And the two guys were like, oh my gosh, this is so good. You have to make this into a book. So then she she had to figure out how to build that out. And she uses this structure of sort of bracketing. So that scene, that little bit she wrote first is the middle of the book. And then she builds stories out around it. So you kind of go through a story and then through another story. And then you get to that central and then you move back out through those two stories. So it's very interesting structure of her book. Another one that's kind of similar and more contemporary is Vikram Chandra, Red Earth and Pouring Rain. Oh, I'm not familiar. Is, is that familiar to you or no? No, no, I'm not familiar with that one. That's a great book where it starts off with a young man who is, uh, you know, he's from India and he has been going to university in the USA and kind of getting Americanized. And he's back in India with his parents and he's got his Levi's jeans <laughs> that he's complaining he hasn't been able to wash and he finally gets to wash them because the water gets turned back on and he's hung them up outside to dry and a monkey has stolen them. And he's so irate at this monkey because these jeans are like his connection to America where he wants to get back to. And he gets a gun and he shoots the monkey. And his parents have like just an absolute breakdown because that's Hanuman. That's a god. You can't shoot a monkey. So the monkey's not dead. They bring it into the study. They lay the monkey down on the father's desk next to the typewriter. And then they're having this big debate about what they're going to do with the monkey. Can they save the monkey? Uh, what if the neighbors find out he shot a monkey? <laughs> and that's the entry into then we get so many stories that are in that same way. You go through one story that leads to another story that leads to another story. And then you get to the heart of the issue and then you go back out through those other stories. And it's the, I, I don't want to give it away, but the monkey is really important in why there are so many stories in, in that book. So those structurally are very interesting books. If you're looking for some, some excitement that way. And then there are a couple of books that feel like magic tricks to me it, because I read them and thought to myself, how on earth did you accomplish this? It's so, and the, the, the first one is Audrey Neffenegger's The Time Traveler's Wife, which many people probably know from the film and the TV series, but I read the book when it first came out and I was blown away by the complication of that timeline and how she managed to make it work. And it really does work very well. So that was a super impressive book. And then Chuck Palahniuk's Rant was another book where at the beginning, I thought I felt like I was smarter than everyone in the book and the author. And by the end, I knew I'd been clearly bamboozled and I had no idea what, <laughs> what, what, what happened. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I think I have to go back and read this whole thing over. 
And it's very interesting because it uses little symbols. It's kind of told in interview style and it uses these little symbols next to people's names that you have, you kind of have to figure out what those symbols mean. There's no key in the book telling you. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating book. So I really like those yeah. two for, for, I'd say for magic tricks. And then for language, as you can tell, like uh, the subject matter of what I write about is often pretty hard hitting but my writing style is quite poetic uh, okay. and lyrical. So, so I love beautiful language. And I think Barbara Kingsolver is one of the masters of beautiful language. And if I ever feel like I need to fill up my, my prose bank uh, with inspiration, I go back and read the Poisonwood Bible. Yeah, It's just beautifully written. Her skill for description amazing and then ben okri's the famished road also just one fabulous image after another uh amazing descriptions and a kind of an an otherworldly place and then books on writing that i recommend stephen king his book on Mm -hmm. writing great read and very informative and educational for anybody who's into writing or anybody who even just wants to know what it's like to write. And of course, Annie Dillard, The Writing Life, which is a very poetic and slender treatise on what it's like to be a writer. And another of my favorites is Letter to a Young Poet, Letters to a Young Poet by uh, Rainer Maria Rilke. And that's just responses from him. So there was a young poet who was writing him letters with questions. And this is 10 letters that are his responses. And we don't get the original letters because his responses are so universal in their application that it doesn't even matter what the question was. Uh, And he talks about criticism of literature and the value of literature. And it's kind of a study of what place storytelling and writing has in our life and art for that matter. So that's kind of my list of go-to favorites. That's an amazing list. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing It's a truncated list. I have to tell you, I could go on and on. (laughs) So I'll just stop there. (laughs) That's, I think it's a great stepping stone for us, (laughs) but I'm also actually really interested in what else is on the list. I'll be honest. I'll send it to you. Long oh, email. yes, I would love that. If you were, okay. oh, I would love it if you sent that to me. What are you currently reading? I am working on my next book right now. So, most of what I'm reading is in relation to that. Mm-hmm. The book that I'm working on right now is me unpacking that CBC Literary Award piece about my relationship with my brother. Yeah. And I, I had started it before, but I wasn't ready to write it then. Re- writing about your own life and your family takes a, a lot of introspection. And my father has since passed away. And so that's given me a little bit more freedom, mm-hmm. uh, to be honest, in that work. And I'm trying to rebuild. My brother and I have been trying to rebuild our relationship. And he is living in conservative Alberta and I for the most part have lived in very left-leaning Vancouver. Mm -hmm. So we have this bridge to cross every time we want to hang out, but we really love each other. 
So one of the things I'm reading right now is my uh, behavioral psychology neuroscience textbook from university, refreshing myself about the brain structures and how they affect behavior. And if I can, I'm looking for ways to connect, again, human biology and the human animal to our behavior. And the questions I'm asking are questions like, is the env- does the environment affect our behavior to the extent that it affects our views on the world? And I think there might be something to that. And I'm also reading a book. It's by Wendy Williams, The Language of Butterflies. Because one of the things that happens for me when I go back to Alberta, which is where I was born, small town Alberta, the thing that keeps me connected to the place and where I feel like I belong there is when I'm out in the nature. And nature is like ever present there. And the insects are just everywhere. So I think that is something I'm weaving into the book as well. The prevalence of the nature, how omnipresent it is and alive, how alive it is. So I'm, I'm reading about, I'm studying different kinds of insects. And right now it happens to be butterflies. I just finished The Family Way by Wayne Ng, who is a friend of mine, another Guernica author. It's a great uh, fiction book that I really enjoyed and highly recommend. And then a young writer I'm, I've been hanging out with has a, a short, a chat book of uh, short stories that I just finished, and they're called Short Stories for a Long Winter, and they're kind of sexy, a little bit smutty, short stories about her life as a, as a, you know, in her late twenties, uh, in, in Turkey, in Istanbul, trying to date. So I, I really enjoyed that. And then the one I'm just starting is Joseph or Josip Novakovich and it's vignettes and it's just little stories about wine. Uh, so those are quick and easy reads that, you know, the kind of book that you take on the Metro with you just to have something to do while you're sitting there. That's a very diverse. (laughs) I'm a very diverse person. (laughs) (laughs) And now I was going to say, this seems like it's kind of out of left field, but it isn't really because even when we've been talking about books, the writing process has been sneaking in throughout it the whole time. What does your writing space look like or what kind of things do you like to have around you as you write? So when I first started writing, I had a little kid. Um, my brother was staying with me. He was sleeping on the couch. This is when we took, I took my first night class uh, in my early 30s. So I was like in a corner of the living room with headphones on uh, at a little desk I used to have. And trying to drown out the world. So I've, I've always written in a corner of my life. So mm-hmm. my primary role was looking after a family, having a job, doing all those things. So I would always carve out a little space, but I don't even have a, I got used to not having a desk for, for the longest time when my husband worked at home and I worked at home and Chloe was still at home, that's my daughter. I started using my bed as my desk. So now I love to write in bed and I'm just, my, my bed, I just make the bed and then 
put a furry blanket over top and then I surround myself in books and pens and have my laptop literally on my lap. My husband bought me this great little beanbag desk that I can put on my lap. So I love writing in bed and I've just given up on having a desk. I write, right now I have my own, uh, I'm at my place in Montreal, which I live by myself, which is glorious. I love living by myself. (laughs) And I write in my living room just with my laptop on my lap and whatever I need is around me on the couch, like a bottle of water, a cup of tea, my books. I always have a notebook beside me, my phone, credit cards in case I need to take a break and do some online shopping. Of course, of course. (laughs) <laughs> some hand cream you know that's, that's it so I don't have a dedicated writing space I'm kind of a nomad I'm an I'm a nomad writer no I love that image that's like really amazing because I think when we think of writers you always think of them yes at a desk maybe in front of a window you know what I mean like it's just very not stagnant it's not the right word that I'm using but you know that it's always the same space I've read that they that they always have to have the same kind of space and stuff so that you, but you kind of like cocoon. I love that. Well, I had this wonderful, my very first writing professor, her name was Mary Connectel. And she, maybe it was Mary Ann. Anyways, she, one of the first assignments she gave us was she said, I want you to take your notebook and I want you to go somewhere different, somewhere foreign to you, somewhere where you don't hang out and write and write something. So I put on my outdoor clothes and I went to the mall and I sat outside a jewelry store looking at all the things I absolutely couldn't afford and wrote about the feeling I was having sitting there doing that. Did you write longhand as well or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that really, well, that was before, <laughs> that was before laptops were really. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's some time ago. So, um, so yeah, I wrote longhand and I like writing. Again, that's the dancer in me. I like to have some movement in it. So doing some mm-hmm. beautiful cursive writing is a nice thing to do. I always had a chalkboard wall in my last place and I would write on that a lot. And um, when the story's not coming, I like to sketch. So I would draw great big things on the chalkboard because then I could get my whole body into it. Mm-hmm. So that really frees up my mind if I get some motion going typing's not really doesn't really do much for me but I found that the process of taking myself to different places helped me maybe have different ideas I love the romantic idea of having a little writing shed in the backyard or my Mm -hmm. own office with a window but I don't know that that's me. I think I think it might be underutilized. I think I might end up just being on the couch or in the bed or in the park anyway. Yeah, that's amazing. Gina, thank you so much for joining us this, this evening. I've had the best time talking to you. Thank you. I enjoyed it a lot too. I as you as you can tell, I can just talk and talk and talk. No, it's wonderful because I can listen so that it's a great partnership we have going here. (laughs) So I thoroughly enjoyed it. I look forward to reading whatever you put out for us in the future. Thank you. And everyone, please pick up Gina's book, 15,000 Pieces, and happy reading. Thank you for joining us on our bookish journey. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing Canada Reads American Style wherever you listen. You can connect with the podcast and Rebecca on Instagram at Canada Reads American Style and with Tara at On a Branch Reads. Until next time, keep reading.